Good morning, One Life, once again. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. She is a professor of mine at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, and you can read a lot more about her in your bulletin. But um, probably the thing that I can say today that is the most true is that I uh, wouldn't have stayed at the school. I would not be the person I am or doing what I'm doing or the way I'm doing it if it weren't for uh, this woman, her in investment in me and influence in me and my classmates. So would you welcome Dr. Shalee Stearns as I pray for her. And she's not, she's, she may be new to you, maybe not. She's been here for, was, was here a while ago. Yeah. But let me pray. God, thank you for Shalee. Thank you for her heart for you. The way her mind works, the way her spirit interacts with others. I pray that our ears would be opened to what you have to say through her today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Martha. Um, it's a very warm welcome, and um, I, I have a feeling that Martha is actually just very Martha. You know that her wonderfulness is really just her. So um, it's it's always fun to see students kind of come into themselves and find their voice, and um, you go, wow, she really is a great pastor, so it's an honor to be here, and it's great to be back. I mean, I, I feel a little bit like this is a family reunion, because I see lots of familiar faces, and I have, haven't been here for a while, and Dave will come in the next service. Actually, he's supposed to be here during the coffee hour, so those of you who want to see my husband, Dave, so those of you who don't know me, hi, nice to, nice to meet you all, and it's good to be here. Um, this morning, I'm going to share with you a little bit about a woman that I have been quite fascinated by for a long time, and I've actually preached on the woman who anoints Jesus based on the Mark text um, before, and I thought, this will be easy. I just finished my, my last week of school last week. I'm in the middle of grading a lot, and... Um, uh, my orchestra's playing Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which means there's a lot of notes for me to learn as well. And I thought, oh, this will be a great sermon text to, to kind of hit on because it's just about a woman. It's an unnamed woman, and how hard could it be? Um, it's a fascinating story, and the reality is this is a very complex story. In fact, we have to... Uh, it's not straightforward who she is. Uh, there's a story in each of the Gospels about this woman but it's unclear if it's the same woman. It's unclear if it's the same story. Is it the same person? Are there multiple people? Were there multiple times that this happened? We just don't know. And so this is part of kind of coming to um, this idea of this woman that what she's done is, is spoken in memory of her, but yet she still remains an unnamed woman. Core to the search for her is... In, is the fact that in each of the stories we realize that Jesus loves her deeply. In each of the Gospels, something different comes out about who this woman is or the purpose of the story being in the Gospel. Um, she is a woman, well, it depends on how you see the story, but she is a woman that comes with her shame 
and she comes with her low standing, and Jesus actually takes that on and basically moves her from being a woman that has no standing to be an honor to being an honor prophet by the end of the story. So something significant happens to her that she isn't just kind of a woman that comes in and, and anoints Jesus. She actually becomes an honored prophet by the end of the story. And so a lot is going on in this idea of a woman who comes and anoints Jesus. The other thing is that I think she really represents all of us. She's an every person. I I was saying this to Dave last night, that she's an every woman, and he was like, what about the men? Isn't isn't, uh, she representative of us as well? And I'm like, okay, she can be representative of you as well. But there's something to this of that she is like us. She doesn't have a lot to bring, necessarily, and she doesn't need to have a lot to bring. All she really brings is her love. She also brings her extravagance, and this is what we're going to talk about today. So we, like this woman, have the capacity to not only be changed by our encounter with Jesus, but to be renamed and transformed by the one who is willing to take on and rename our shame that those places where we feel separated from our communities, those places where we feel like we're unloved, Jesus hits those places. And this story really brings that out of how Jesus um, reaches out to this woman who comes and worships so extravagantly in this story. So this woman who comes to anoint Jesus is one who has lived a sinful life, yet she lives an honored prophet. And this is good news indeed to all of us this morning. So we're going to talk about who is this woman. Can we go to the next slide? So who is she? So right off, we have a few options about who this woman is. And again, she shows up in each one of the Gospels, and we're going to talk through each of the Gospels. So the first one is in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and then Mark 14, 3 through 11, and she's simply referred to as an unnamed woman. An unnamed woman comes in and anoints Jesus. In Luke 7... She is a woman who has lived a sinful life in that town. So it's not just that she has lived a sinful life, but that she's known. When she comes in, they actually know who she is, but she still remains unnamed. In the Gospel of John, she's named as Mary, and Mary of Bethany, and she is the sister of, anyone know? What was it? Martha and Lazarus, yeah. And so we kind of see this, so you realize that, oh, okay, so now we get to the Gospel of John and we know exactly who she is. So we're going to talk about that. Now, to add to all of this, there's a complicated assumption in the tradition that she's also Mary of Magdalene and that each of these women is actually Mary of Magdalene. But there's nothing that actually says in the text that she is Mary of Magdalene. So we're going to talk about that just a little bit. So one of the reasons why people think that she's Mary of Magdalene is that in a lot of the Gospels, you have in very quick after this, like in Luke, it's the next chapter. In fact, it's the next section. It starts talking about that there's a group of women that are actually hanging out. They kind of hang out with the disciples. Um, in Luke, it's that they actually give money and support financially the disciples. And among them is Mary of Magdalene. 
And so it's the question of, did this woman come and anoint Jesus and then join the group and become one of the disciples and one of the women that follows them? And so that's one way of kind of thinking through that. But let's get to some text. I'm curious if anyone would be willing to read for me. Um, Luke 36 through 50. Anyone? Laurel, do you want to? And we do have it up on the screen as well. It's a little, this is why we're having someone read this. It's a little small. Uh, Luke 7, 36 through 50. So as, as these things, we're going to read three of the gospel accounts. And as we go through, if, you, if you're a note taker, kind of keep track of some of the details. Like what are we actually told in these gospels and what do we know? We're kind of doing an investigation this morning of like, who is this woman? Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who, who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, and that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to them, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you. Um, so there's a couple of things. In the setting of, of the Gospel of Luke right now, we have um, Jesus who, and if we were just focusing on this one passage, I would pr- probably focus much more on the identity of Jesus because it's much more about the identity of Jesus than the identity of the woman. But since the prompt is, who is this woman? We'll kind of, t- but so I'm going to talk just a little bit about the identity of Jesus. So where Jesus is in his ministry is he's now traveling around. The last time we saw a name for a city is Nain. So we have no idea if he's still in Nain or if he's still kind of traveling. So we have no idea who he is. He's a traveling teacher, and he has been invited into a, an unnamed Pharisee's house. And basically, the Pharisee is asking, 
Is he a true prophet, and is he the prophet that we've been waiting for? And so he really has invited Jesus here into his house, in some ways as a skeptic, but also as kind of like trying to figure out who Jesus is. And so that's kind of the core of the story, if you were looking for the through line of the story. But it's important to know that he's kind of in the middle of his ministry. But at the same time, the Gospel of Luke, he's really like has this message of Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He was given the Spirit at his baptism. He was sent out by the power of the Spirit into the desert to be, um, to be tempted. And then he's empowered to come back into his ministry. And so we're seeing the anointing of the Holy Spirit actually at work in the midst of these stories. And so as we start to think about this woman who comes and anoints him, really the, in, in the Gospel of Luke, we see the overlying sense of, is Jesus actually the one who has been sent by God to be the Messiah? He's been anointed by the Spirit, and quite, people are pushing into, is he really that person? So they, they are reclining at the table, and the, the custom of the time is that if you see someone reclining at, tab- at the table, that the dinner is actually in honor of Jesus, most likely in honor of Jesus. It's not that they're just sitting at the table, but they're purposely there to hear Jesus teach. And so people who are invited are actually at the table, reclining at the table. Everyone else could come and kind of sit and linger, but they're not supposed to actually come and touch or interact with the invited guests. And so what happens is you see this woman begins to transgress that social barrier. She's supposed to be sitting on the outside, and instead she actually comes in and just is overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus and just begins to weep at his feet. And all we know of this woman is that the text says that she is a woman who has lived a sinful life in the town. And so the Pharisee begins to think, if he knows, if he's a real prophet, he will know that this woman is an unsavory woman. Jesus will not let her actually touch him. Because by touching, he's actually, what I would say is, actually taking on her shame or taking on the stigma of who she is. And then she has this alabaster uh, vial or this alabaster jar of perfume. And there's, there's several different ways of thinking about the perfume. The perfume could either be maybe her dowry, but most likely it was the perfume that she used if she was a prostitute to actually tell people that she was a prostitute. So it was a sign of of her identity as a prostitute. And it would be something that people could, uh, well, smell. And so literally as she anoints Jesus with this, he becomes actually drenched in the smell of her stigma or of her shame. So it's, not, so it's different than in the other gospel accounts in that, um, and in this way, she's actually saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. So Jesus literally takes on her shame and she's no longer that person anymore. So she's literally transformed. So we see that her head is uncovered and her hair is down and this is one of the signals that she might be a uh, prostitute. Um, And of course the Pharisee is offended that she's here and she's touching this person that he's invited into his house. Now here's where the twist in the story happens. So Jesus sees that the Pharisee is upset, and he basically goes, no, 
You didn't offer me water for my feet. You didn't offer oil to anoint my head. You didn't welcome me into your house. So he tells a parable, and he talks about forgiveness. And in this, he basically honors this woman and says that she now is the host, and you are now the servant. He actually switches their roles in the house. And you who, think, who thought that you were very high and mighty, you're actually, you actually dishonored me, and you have, in that way, even dishonored your whole household. Whereas this woman who has no standing and has nothing... She doesn't have the house to give. She didn't give the party. But instead, she has been a better host to me because she has so much gratitude and she has so much love that she's just come and given all of who she is in this moment. So the parable kind of becomes this enacting of what we might say as the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So we could, we're, in my mind, I kind of hear the Mary's song in Luke 1, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Or maybe even in Luke 4, which is his big pronouncement of where he's basically saying that Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, um, is now fulfilled. And so in Luke 4, he, he says in the temple, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Note this language of anointment. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and set the oppressed feet free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the other line that's that's left out from the Isaiah passage is to bind up the brokenhearted, which I feel like this whole passage is that that this woman has come freely giving all of her worship and what Jesus has done is he has bound up her broken heart and her broken life. So this is the most divergent of of the pictures of this woman who comes and uh, anoints Jesus. But you can begin to see we're learning just as much about Jesus as who we are before God. Let's go to John 12. Would someone else like to read for me? Hey, John. Um, yeah. So this is John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she save this perfume for the day of my burial. 
You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, thank you very much. Um, So all of a sudden we can see that the setting of this story has shifted. So if we were going to preach only on this, or we were going to talk only about this passage, we would actually see that the point of this is to prepare for the passion story. Right after this is the triumphal entry, and all of a sudden we're no longer in the middle of Jesus's ministry, but we're actually right at the end of Jesus's ministry. And so everything within this passage is actually preparing us for the week that is to come. So in this, we learn, for one thing, that... um, See, where do we want to start? That he's in Bethany, for one thing. So he's no longer kind of randomly someplace that we don't know where he is. He's specifically at Bethany. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead, which is very similar to the Luke passage in that the passage right before the last anointing, the widow's son had been resurrected. And so in some ways, there's a connection to resurrection. But in this particular passage, at the very end, we have uh, that the resurrected one is dangerous. So Lazarus is also going to be killed because he's dangerous. And so resurrection is not just kind of a sign of hope. Resurrection is a sign of something is going on. And so we enter into the story with this kind of sense of something is about to happen or something is happening here. So we're at a dinner that's also honoring Jesus. Um, You could assume that we're at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, but actually there's nothing in the text that says that. It just says that we're actually at somebody's house, Mary's serving, and Lazarus and Mary happen to be there. I think we're actually at somebody else's house. My my theory is that they're at Simon the Pharisee or Simon the leper's house, and you'll find out because that's who we're at in Mark and Matthew. And so we kind of go, oh, this probably that's where we are. Um, and they're probably having some sort of celebration because while Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead, it was kind of a cool time to be around Jesus, right? Um, Come on, yeah, yeah. It's a cool time to be around Jesus. Um, But the core of this story, though it's seemingly about the controversy over such an extravagant gesture, it's really about the guilt of Judas, And so if we're preparing for this next week, we also see why it is that Judas's heart has been corrupted, that he's actually a thief, he's not to be trusted, and even though he may seem to have the right thing that comes out of his mouth, he actually misses the point completely. And so we see kind of all of these different things in the story. But since our task is to find out who is this woman, let's talk about the woman. So... Much in this account is, again, preparing the hearer for the story of the passion, but there's a couple of different things. So Mary anoints Jesus, and we know exactly who Mary is because she's Martha and Lazarus' sister. 
But this anointing really is, instead of it being uh, an act of worship, this anointing, I would say, is an anointing for a king. Because remember, we're about to go into the triumphal entry. Within the next few days, that he will enter Jerusalem where the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. So he's actually being anointed into that place. It's also prophetic in that Jesus in the coming week will be heralded by the people as king and then denounced by those same people. And this denouncement then leads to his death and burial. And so it says it in the text that this is actually an anointing also as a precursor to his death. So in thinking about who this woman is who comes in and and, uh, weeps at Jesus' feet, John 11 gives us a little bit of of a hint in that John 11, too, actually says that Mary is the one, and get this, Mary is the one who anointed Jesus. And so you start to go, and there's nothing in the text that says that this happened before or it's about to happen. And so we're like, so is she the woman in Luke 7? Anyone? I think she is. I think she's actually the woman in Luke 7. And in John 12, we actually see her reenacting this. So if Luke 7 was maybe her leaving her, her ways of prostitution, Luke, or John 12 would then be giving over her dowry or giving over whatever else she had by, give, by actually anointing Jesus' feet once more and not knowing that this is going to be going into the Passion Week. So one of the other things that's kind of troublesome is that you go, okay, so there's this woman, and she's, you know, Mary has done all of this. Why do we not hear from her ever again in the gospel? But when we see at the resurrection, when people start to go to the tomb after Jesus' death, Mary Magdalene shows up, and you think, huh, is this Mary actually Mary Magdalene, who actually has multiple names, is she just another one of the Marys? Um, and so this is one of the things that's really unclear in the tradition is why, you know, what is actually happening and why would Mary, who's so prominent here, not actually be at the graveside? It would make a lot of sense that she would be among the women that would go to anoint Jesus' Jesus's dead body. So I'll just kind of throw that out there. Are these the same Mary? And is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, the one who waits for Jesus in the garden outside of the tomb, and thus is one of the primary witnesses for the resurrection? And so she becomes not only the woman who anoints, but the woman who actually proclaims the resurrection first. That's a little pet theory of mine. But it's interesting, as I was reading through this, that all throughout the tradition, you know, even like Augustine and people like that, no one really has any idea if this is really who this woman is. But we have a sense of, huh, it would make sense if she was there. So, any thoughts about that? That That complicates her character a lot. This is what I mean. So I'm sitting at my kitchen table yesterday going, oh, I thought this was going to be like a straightforward, you know, like this is what we're doing and it's this woman and this lovely story. And then all of a sudden it's like, huh. Any other thoughts? Yeah. All these women who linger at the edges, traveling around with the disciples. 
Well, let's move on to the next account. And we're gonna talk about Matthew 26 and Mark 14 at the same time because they're basically the same telling. Now, this gets into, um, this account actually takes place after the triumphal entry. This is the other thing that was kind of complicated as I started to look at this. You guys have just finished with your Lenten series and you just finished Easter, and I was realizing, oh, this story actually probably most appropriately belongs somewhere in Holy Week. Because, because of the themes of, of prophecy, because of the themes of that Jesus is about to die, and really the theme of, boy, you disciples have no idea what's about to happen. But do you have eyes to see and ears to hear that you're actually being prepared for something? Not only is Jesus being prepared, but you all, this is a sign for you to pay attention to. So, um, will someone read Mark Three, thir- 14, 3 through 11. Can I have a volunteer? I feel like, do I have a witness? Do I have a witness? Who would like to read? Rich said I can Rich, do you want to read? Sure. Mark 13, what? Mark 14, oh, 14? 3 through 11. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival, the unleavened oh. bread. Oh, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. <laughs> But then we see that we go right to the, to the, to the Last Supper right, right after this. Um, so we have a few kind of details that we, we see here. First is that, again, it's ripe for the triumphal entry, and so Jesus is a, has already come into, come into Jerusalem and been heralded as the king, king of the Jews. Um, they are in the house of Simon the leper, who is most likely a Pharisee who was healed by Jesus, though we're not actually given the details of fully of who this, this person is, but you can kind of see that if... if in the John story, they were at the house of Simon the leper. We'd go, oh, that these are the same, maybe the same account. In this account, instead of anointing the feet of Jesus, she actually anoints Jesus' head with perfume. Um, 
And this would be more the typical gesture uh, of honoring a, a, a guest in a house would be to actually anoint their head. And, and so it would be a, an anointing, a blessing. Um, but this is also, as he says, a prophecy toward the burial of Jesus again. So this is an extravagant gesture worth about a year's wages that gets pointed out in the text this time and that there's a lot of kind of rumbling of, oh my goodness, you know, why this extravagance now and, and uh, this could have been sold, it could have, been, could have fed the poor. The other thing is that this kind of perfume, it's in an alabaster jar, it also, once it was open, had to be used entirely. And so she pours the whole thing on Jesus, which is like just this, again, sticky, smelly. The whole house is then kind of filled with this fragrance, right? And so instead of like in the Lucan account where we kind of have a sense that he takes on the shame of this woman and redeems it, that this time it's, it's really more of a sense of um, what I would say, and this is where I can turn to Archibus. I hope you like the po- the images. I I love I love art, and I've I've enjoyed looking at looking for some of this art. But this is a particular favorite of mine. Um, when we see this, uh, he has her actually painted as a nun, and with this idea that she's actually giving over the fullness of her dowry, and so she's actually marrying herself to Christ, marrying herself to the to the, to the way of Jesus. Um, another image that I probably could have given is if this woman is Mary Magdalene, the tradition is that she then went on and did ministry throughout her life and ended up working with lepers. So we're there at Simon the leper's house, works in the desert with the lepers. Um, and the image is of Mary having nothing and she's clothed with her long, long hair. And so she's out in the desert. And so in some ways, we kind of see, oh, there must be something, and no matter who this woman is, that she's given herself over completely to the ministry of Jesus. Um, you also see that she's pouring everything out, and her, whole, her face is actually illuminated by the face of Jesus. And in this, we actually begin to see the face of Jesus more clearly. And so this isn't just kind of an act, but this is a, a revealing act that something's really significant about both her and Jesus is being revealed in this moment. Um, I've often thought of this act as being very similar to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's actions in the book of Jeremiah. Right before they go into exile, um, Jeremiah has the opportunity to buy a field and God says, go and buy that field and buy that field at full price. And this becomes an enacted prophetic act that in a time that's about to become very, very unclear and very, very unsteady, that don't worry, I'm gonna buy this field. And in Jeremiah it says, um, for this is what the Lord God Almighty, God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And so we can imagine even in this story that she's saying this extravagance that Jesus' body is about to go through a transformation. Jesus is about to die, be buried, descend into hell, and then to be raised on the third day. But the disciples don't know that. They don't know un- any of this. And so in this kind of prophetic act, it's, about, it's as if she's saying, don't worry. 
There will be a time when everything will be settled and you will understand this again, that you're going to feel great discomfort and doubt and you're, you're not going to know what to do. But don't worry. This is a double anointing. This is not only for burial, but this is for kingship and lordship. And so, again, it's the idea of if they're paying attention, there's a lot happening here. But of course there's a protest about the expense of this gesture and how the perfume could have been sold to help the poor. Let me go to the next. And Jesus dismisses all of this and praises her action as a prophetic act, which prepares him for, this, for his impending death and burial. He then declares, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And of course, we see that Judas then goes out and decides to betray Jesus after this story. Um, But it's just kind of interesting to kind of start to think everything that began to happen, where people prepared, how can you prepare for, for the Passion Week of all that was going to happen? What was she thinking I have no idea if she knew what she was doing, if she'd had a message from God and she was sent, or if it was just kind of out of the just gratitude of her heart and that she loved Jesus so much that she was like, I must go and do this act. We actually have no idea what the motivations for her, you know, in the prophets we often kind of have this, you know, other monologue going on of, and the Lord God then said this. For this prophetic act, we have nothing like that. Instead, we just have the action. So we don't know what any of the motivation was. We only have the action, and of course, we know what happens in the next week. Um, At the same time, we also see that there are all these women who are lingering on the edges who remain very, very faithful. So if we go to... Oh, Henry, you're so great. Um... And it's, it's no wonder that in some ways she's something of a precursor or something of a, like, this is a faithful woman and she's actually representative of all the faithful women that were beginning to gather around Jesus. And of course, they're the ones that go to the tomb. They're the ones that remain at the bottom of the cross and they're the ones, the first ones to go to the tomb on Sunday morning. And so it's no kind of, for me, I'd be, in, in studying this time around, I was like, it isn't strange to think that one woman would become many women who then go to anoint Jesus at, at the end. And of course, what they find is that Jesus isn't there. And so the anointing has already been done, which I think is also really significant, that he was anointed. And they couldn't anoint him because it was Good Friday and all, the, all of that, you know, so it's, it was a Sabbath. And so when they go to anoint him, that there's no need for that anymore, and now there's the resurrection. So if an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus is Mary of Bethany, then perhaps if she is Mary Magdalene, then she is the first witness in the Gospel of John especially. Um, But I think that no matter what, I think she's one of the women that's there. So I don't know if that's... It was fascinating to me as I'm like, huh, I wonder speculating. So I want to end on two more things. 
And this will be a little bit more application-oriented, and I'm going to make you talk to each other. So prepare your hearts. Um, So the first question is, as we see these stories, who is Jesus? So turn to one or two people around you, and what did you learn about Jesus in his encounter with these women? Or this woman? Or do you think there are more? You know, so... You, you, whatever your theory is, but what did you what did you find out about Jesus in these stories? So just turn just for a couple of minutes. Did you learn anything? What did you notice? So maybe just one minute, so if you haven't shared... Okay, so any insights about what you discovered about Jesus? Just shout out, because the answer is always Jesus, right? <laughs> just, just, Jesus. That he doesn't shun her. No, and, and I don't know what the implications of that is, I, as Christians, what we, we do in terms of sin and other sins, but it bears thought. Yeah, yeah. That's one that's really lingered in my head. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Say that again. He sees the heart. I think it's really significant, especially when you, in the Luke 
passage that she comes in and the first thing she does is weeps. That I don't think that's really intentional on her part as far as an action goes. I think she came to anoint Jesus. Um, but she just, she sits at his feet and just weeps and then begins to wash his feet with her hair. So there is something to that about the heart, that he sees the heart. And anyone else? Of course, there's kind of the easy ones of like, he forgives sins and... Um, but anyone else? Like, what, do you, what did you learn about Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's like, notice these things. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> things are about to happen. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, that happens in my life all the time where things, I'm like, oh, you, when you start to have the same conversation like six times in a couple of weeks and you go, oh, maybe the Spirit is trying to tell me something. Yeah, yeah. Does that not happen to anyone else? It happens to me all the time where I'm like, wow, I'm really dim-witted, just like, you know, ah. Um, not that you're dim-witted, it's just me. Um, it, anyone else? Yeah. Again, that kind of transgressing of barriers or boundaries, and Jesus transgresses right back and says, no, come. Um, uh, Beverly Gaventa, who's a biblical, uh, Pauline biblical scholar, uh, she talks about that, especially in Luke-Acts, but you see this in each of the stories, that the identity is actually revealed through the telling of the story, that you have to go through the story in order to understand, which is why often someone will come in at the beginning of a story and be named a certain way, and that's the social norm. We go, oh, this is a woman who's been forgotten. Oh, this is a woman who has no social standing. Oh, this is a woman. We can add on to like who she is, and Jesus is like, you actually don't see who this woman is, but I see the heart. I see that she is someone that's worth our, our time, and so she, she shall be remembered. And so that significance of the change of, of identity. In a lot of stories, we see um, an almost familial where they're named sister or they're named daughter. And in this, she's named prophet, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's done uniquely in each of the stories of where that barrier hap- or the, where that boundary goes. Do you do you see? And is this the prophet? Yes, indeed, this is the prophet. Okay.
So I want to leave you with a couple of questions. So, um, so if we learn quite a bit about Jesus, my last question would be, what do we learn from her example? So I want to leave you just with a couple of questions. I'm an academic. I don't usually like have application questions in my classes. Um, so, you know, I struggled with this. Um, but there is something to asking yourself, what do you love with your whole self? What do you love deeply in your life? Um, one of the lectures I give in, in one of my classes is, has a lot to do with um, no matter who you are, you worship something. When you start to look at what you actually do in your life, what is that something that you love so deeply that you return to all the time? So what do you love? What do you actually worship in your life? And what kind of love and gratefulness have you experienced in worship today? So she was just like full-on grateful. So what are, those, what are those places, even if it's a tiny seed of something, what are those places of where you find gratefulness in your heart today? And the last one is, where are you nudged to give extravagantly to God and to others? Where are you nudged to give extravagantly to God and others? With that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for bringing us here this morning on this gorgeous day. There's so many other places that we could be, but it is so good to be in your house this morning. Be with our hearts where we may, might feel a little tug of something, but also be with our hearts in all those different places where we might feel like, I'm just tired, I'm weary. So be with us today, send your spirit to us and fill us with your love. In the name of Christ, amen. Would you stand as we sing? Make me an instrument of 
Oh! 